Well, as we saw last week, God the Father planned to save and elect people from their sins. This plan stems from sheer grace. Why are you a Christian? Why am I a Christian? It's nothing in me and it's nothing in you that distinguishes you from unbelievers or distinguishes me from unbelievers. But as Ephesians chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 say, it's simply according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. As we'll sing a little bit later when we come to the communion table, each of us cries with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? It's sheer grace, brothers and sisters, that we are in Christ Jesus. Sheer grace. So let's look at Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 now, which say that God the Father lavished the riches of His grace upon us. The plan that God the Father devised was itself full of grace. It was a gracious plan. And the plan that God the Father made has been set in motion. So it's not now just a plan. It's not only a theory or a dream or or a purpose in God's mind, but it's actually a plan that has already begun to take action. The plan was full of grace, but verses 7 and 8 of Ephesians chapter 1 says that the, the riches of His grace have been lavished upon us. And so the plan has now become action. God the Father has lavished the riches of His grace upon us. He hasn't just planned to lavish the riches of His grace upon us, but He actually now has lavished the riches of His grace upon us. God the Father has set His plan in motion. And He has set His plan in motion in Christ. God the Father has a Christ-centered plan. And God the Father's Christ-centered plan has been set in motion. Look for a moment at the back of your bulletins. One of our core values is Christ-centered. And this is why. We believe that Jesus Christ is central to the biblical story. And that all of the major themes of Scripture may only be understood properly in relation to Him. Therefore, as we strive to be biblical... We strive to be Christ-centered. Passages like this one before us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10, show us that Jesus is the central character in the biblical narrative. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is the dominant character. The Old Testament prepares us for His coming, prophesying about Him and providing for us the mental categories that we need in order to correctly understand the nature of His person and His work. If Jesus showed up on the scene without the revelation of the Old Testament, we wouldn't understand properly the way that we ought to, who He is and what He has done. The Old Testament not only leads us to expect His coming, but gives us the mental categories that we need in order to properly make sense of His person and His work. And then the New Testament details His coming. Obviously, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which just tell us He came, and this is what He did. And then the rest of the New Testament unpacks the significance of His person and His work. So in this way, the Old Testament and the New Testament together, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is really one meta-narrative. 
one big story. It has a whole bunch of little stories in it. But we're wrong to think of the Bible as basically an anthology of a whole bunch of little stories. What we need to think of the Bible as is fundamentally one big story. One major story with one major plot line. God created a good world. It was corrupted by sin. God sent Jesus to undo the effects of sin and bring salvation for the world. And he will bring everything to a glorious consummation. That is the big plot line of the Bible. And Jesus is the fundamental character, the principal character, the main character in that big story, that big meta-narrative. The plan of God the Father from eternity past was, in a sense, to write a story in which Christ would be the central figure. And in order that His glory might be manifest in and through the work of His Son in history. The plan of the Father, which is the storyline of all Scripture, uh, is centered in Christ. And not only is the plan centered in Christ, but the revelation of the plan, which is in the pages of Scripture, centers in Christ. So in other words, what I'm saying, when I, uh, what I'm trying to communicate is that it's not a plan that we actually just don't know about or that we speculate about. It's a plan that has been revealed. To us, right? And so it's not just a plan in God's mind, but it's a plan, as it were, on God's tongue. It's a plan on God, in God's mouth. And as He has spoken, we've seen that what was in His mind was Christ-centered. And what He has spoken to us is Christ-centered. And what He's doing in redemptive history is Christ-centered. Look at uh, chapter 1 and verse 8, or pardon me, verse 9, right at the very end. In all wisdom, look at the end of verse 8 first. In all wisdom and insight, God has made known to us the mystery of His will. And His will is according to His purpose. And His purpose and His will have now been set forth in Christ. In other words, manifest in Christ. So God has this plan. He's made it known to us in Christ. So, in other words, what I'm, what I'm saying in all of this is that God's plan is Christ-centered. God's plan has re- been revealed to us in the Bible as being Christ-centered. God's actions in redemptive history are Christ-centered. And that's why we as a church are Christ-centered. So, what is this Christ-centered plan of God that I've been going on and on about? What is this Christ-centered plan of God which comprises the biblical storyline? The plan of God the Father is to save persons and restore the cosmos in and through Christ Jesus, His Son. That's what we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. So we're going to look at three things this morning. One is the backstory of Ephesians 1, 7 to 10. The second thing is the zoomed-in plan of God. And the third thing is the zoomed-out plan of God. So let's begin with the backstory. According to the dictionary, a backstory is a story that tells what led up to the main story or plot. In other words, a backstory is what you need to know in order for a story to make sense. If I just start telling a story in the middle, it won't make any sense unless you know the backstory. So, for example, then Roger loaded the chickens into his truck. And he, he drove, Roger drove them 
to Mr. Brathwaite's farm. And as he pulled up and began unloading the chickens from his truck, he could see tears in Mr. Brathwaite's eyes. Right? If I just start telling that story right in the middle, you're like, what? That makes no sense because you don't have the backstory. Right? But what if, what if I tell you that the backstory is that Roger, who was like a son to Mr. Brathwaite, stole chickens from him. And then he felt guilty about it when Mr. Brathwaite confronted him about it, loaded the chickens into his truck, and returned the chickens. All of a sudden, what I just told you makes so much sense. We, un we now understand why Roger loaded the chickens into his truck. He's returning the stolen chickens. And now we know why Mr. Brathwaite had tears in his eyes as he saw Roger unloading the chickens, because this was a kid who was like a son to him, who betrayed him, but now has come back to ask him for forgiveness and to be reconciled to him, right? So you see how the backstory makes the story make so much more sense. So there's a backstory to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10 also. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that in wisdom and insight, God has made known to us the mystery of His will, which He has now set forth in Christ. In other words, God has been telling a story throughout redemptive history. When Christ enters the scene, it's like the climax of a movie or a book or something like that. But the climax cannot really make sense apart from the backstory. Think about it. Christ redeems us. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. If you don't know the backstory, He redeems us from what? Or from whom? Right? What are our trespasses here in verse 7? And why do we need to be forgiven them? Right? Why do all things need to be united in Christ? As it says in verse 10. God has a plan to unite all things in Christ. Why do all... Are they not united already? What, what is the backstory here? Right? We need the backstory to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10, in order for these verses to properly make sense to us. Paul just assumes that his readers understand the backstory already. And so he launches into talking about redemption and forgiveness of trespasses and the uniting of all things in Christ. But if we don't know the backstory, right? if we don't... Uh, properly understand the backstory, then we don't understand what all these things are and what they mean. So let's investigate the backstory, why we need redemption, and what or who we need redemption from. We need to know what trespasses are and why we need to be forgiven for them. We need to know why all things need to be united in Christ. So let's begin with sin. The Baptist Catechism defines sin as uh, transgression against or lack of conformity unto God's law. So transgressing against God's law or lacking conformity unto God's law is sin. In other words, doing what God says we shouldn't or failing to do what God says we should. That's sin. And Adam sinned. Flip back in your Bible to Genesis. Adam was the first man. Flip back in your Bible all the way to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, we read this. The Lord God commanded the man, that's Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God's law. Right? Sin is any transgression against or lack of conformity unto God's law. Now flip over to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. 
So when the woman, that's Eve, who's Adam's wife, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, that's Adam, who was with her and he ate. So Adam sinned. Adam transgressed the law of God. And when Adam sinned, we sinned in him since he was our representative. Now that's kind of a hard concept for people to understand, especially if you've never heard it before. But the Bible is so clear that Adam acted as our representative. Look at, look at the text, and we'll, we'll get to this not before too long in our evening series, because I'm preaching through Genesis. And I'm in chapter 1 now, but we'll be in chapter 3 soon enough. But look even in chapter 3. Eve eats, and in fact she eats first, and then she gives the fruit to her husband. Um, but then in verse 9, afterwards, as soon as they've done that, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? So we see right in Genesis that God doesn't come looking for Eve and be like, Oh, Eve, what did you do? God comes looking for Adam, even though Eve was actually the first one to eat. This gets unpacked later and later in Scripture. There are things that are in Genesis which are doctrines that are kind of there in seed form but they haven't been fully developed and fully grown yet but as we look at the rest of scripture we see the seeds grow and they're expanded and explained further so adam what you see first is that god holds adam accountable even for uh the sin that both he and eve committed but you see it more explicitly later on in scripture uh we don't have time to turn there and unpack it at length but romans chapter 5 and first corinthians 15 are two passages that are uh, very clear that when Adam sinned, he was sinning as a representative of mankind. And so when Adam sinned, the whole human race was plunged into guilt and into corruption. When Adam sinned, we all incurred guilt. Uh, Romans chapter 5, we'll, we will read one verse from there. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so sins and so death spread to all men because all sinned right that's very very clear when adam sinned all men sinned so we all incurred guilt in adam uh, and then ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 which again i'm not going to expose it at length because we're going to get there very very soon uh, chapter 2 ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 also teach that not only do we inherit guilt, but we inherited corruption because of Adam's sin. Ephesians 2, 1-3 says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, See, so you, you, you say, okay, well, all that proves is that that was what the Ephesian Christians used to be like, right? Because Paul's not writing to us, he's writing to the Ephesian Christians, right? Go, look, go on, look at the end of verse 3. Like the rest of mankind. Paul leaves there's no wiggle room here, right? All people born since Adam are not only guilty but corrupt. Dead in trespasses and sins, and all of these things fit 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, all of these things fit every single person who's ever been born since Adam. It's explicit right there, like the rest of mankind. So, Adam sinned and we all became guilty and corrupt in him. This is because there was a covenant that God made with Adam, where Adam was appointed as a representative over humanity. Like for instance, let's just say hypothetically, and this is, a, this is just a thought experiment, but let's just say hypothetically, no one had sinned yet. None of us had sinned. And then let's say that I go and sin, right? All that's gonna happen is I'm gonna become a sinner because God never made a covenant with me where he appointed me as the representative of all mankind. Right? That never happened. But God appointed Adam as a representative of all mankind. We see that um, uh, explicitly in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Like I mentioned, these are key passages for understanding the nature of God's relationship with Adam and the nature of Adam's relationship with the rest of mankind. These are important passages to understand if we're properly going to understand sin and guilt and human nature and so on and so forth. And in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7, in case you're still committing the word thing fallacy, which we talked about last week, which is um, just because a word is not there doesn't mean that the thing is not there, right? Like the Trinity, we talked about that last week. Sometimes ideas are there even when the words aren't. But in this case, we have words too, just in case you're in doubt. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7 says this. God is speaking of sinful Judah. And he says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So in case there was any doubt, God made a covenant with Adam whereby he was appointed as a representative over humanity. The nature of Adam's relationship was conditioned upon obedience in that uh, reward was offered upon the fulfillment of uh, the conditions and punishment was attached to disobedience. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So again, this is not a sermon on the covenant of works per se, so I'm just going to kind of leave it there for now. But the important thing to understand for the moment is that Adam acted as a representative of mankind. When Adam sinned, we all incurred guilt and corruption. That's the important thing to see. And law, therefore, according to both God's nature and according to God's covenant with, Ab with Adam, had a rightful claim over us after Adam sinned. So because God is a holy God, he can't just look and see people sin and not punish them for their sin. So according to God's nature, God's law has a rightful claim upon our lives. It has a rightful claim to punish sinners. But also because of the covenant that God made with Adam, the law has a rightful claim to the punishment of sinners, right? Because Adam acted in the stead of mankind when he was put under the condition, if you eat of it, you shall surely die, right? And so Romans 6.23 then is true. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. When you work, you earn wages. When you sin, you earn death. The wages of sin is death. You do sin, you get death. Right? The wages of sin is death. So that's 
the issue here. That when Adam sinned, we all became under the law's jurisdiction, deserving of penalty for our sin, deserving of punishment for our sin. Therefore, there was a necessity of redemption arising from our sin. The law had a rightful claim to our death, a rightful claim to our punishment. It's as if, I mean, I'm, I know I'm using personification because the law is not a person. But it's as if the law could say to God, look, I have been violated. This person must die. Both because you are a holy God and because of the covenant in which you entered into with Adam, you stipulated that on the day that he eats of it, these people would die. Right? So the law had a rightful claim. So God is committed both by virtue of his character and by virtue of his covenant with Adam to punishing sin. If God is going to pardon lawbreakers, he must somehow redeem them from the curse of the law. Redeem means to buy back, to give a price in order to obtain something, to procure something by means of putting forward either its value, its assessed price, its ransom price, etc. That's the idea here in Redeem. It's an exchange. There's the payment of something and the acquisition of something. If God is going to pardon lawbreakers, He must somehow redeem them from the curse of the law. God can't just, God can't just overlook the law, overlook the law's demands and be like, well, I chose them in eternity past for salvation. Yes, they are sinners, but I'm God, so I can do whatever I want. Right? God acts in accordance to His nature. Right? And God acts in faithfulness to His covenant. And because God is faithful to the covenant that He made with Adam, He will not rescind its terms. Adam sinned, and so all who are in Adam must die. Right? And because God is a holy God, everyone who has broken God's law must die. The law has a claim to the death of sinners that God must respect. He will respect it. He says all the way through Scripture that His law is inviolable. So, if God is going to pardon lawbreakers, He must somehow redeem them from the curse of the law. God must make a payment, the payment that the law requires, in order that the law would relinquish its ownership, as it were. And again, I'm using personification. The law is not a co-equal deity with God. The law emanates from God's own being. But I'm just trying to give a word picture here to help us understand what's going on at the cross. God must make a payment to the law in order that the law would relinquish its ownership, as it were, over those within its domain. And it is in Christ Jesus that God has acted to redeem sinners from the curse of the law. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It couldn't be clear. Adam's sin led to a curse for all mankind, which led to the necessity of redemption from the curse of the law if God was to save any accursed sinners. 
God had to honor the demands of His law in exchange for the pardon of His chosen people. So let's consider now how Christ redeemed sinners from the curse of the law. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 1. In Him we have redemption through His blood. This is God's zoomed in plan. We're moving to the second point. We're done with the backstory. We're zooming in to see God's plan here of redemption. Redemption in His blood. Humans needed to be redeemed from the curse of the law. This is, if you're photography people, I'm not, so I figured the opposite of a wide-angle lens would be a narrow-angle lens. But apparently it's a telephoto lens. Who knew? So this this is the look at God's plan, which He set forth in Christ, with the telephoto lens on. Look at um, verses, look at Ephesians 1, chapter, chapter 1 and verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. There's, there's an idea what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. And you don't necessarily need to know that phrase, but you do need to understand that idea because it's central to the biblical gospel. Penal substitutionary atonement. Let's just break that down. Penal, the root word is penalty. Substitution is one in the place of another. And atonement is the work of Christ on the cross. So what penal substitutionary atonement means is that the atonement was in its nature both penal and substitutionary. Uh, The law was broken and the law requires uh, that the sinner must die. And the law also requires perfect obedience. And so we're, we got a problem on two counts as sinners. We haven't offered to God what we owed Him. And we have also transgressed His law, thereby incurring condemnation for ourselves. So we got two problems. Right? Galatians 4.4 reads like this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What Jesus came to do was to come as a substitute for lawbreakers in order to redeem us from the curse of the law. Jesus came to live according to the law's righteous demands as a substitute for we who have broken the law's righteous demands. Jesus Christ came to die as a substitute, though He did not deserve to die for His own sins, because He had none. He, he died as a substitute for those who have broken God's law. And so, He came to be born of woman, born under the law, in order to be a proper substitute. And uh, An animal, for example, can't be a proper substitute for humans. Hebrews tells us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Right? We, can't, we can't look at a black-bellied goat or a black-bellied sheep, pardon me, and say, and say oh, this is going to die in my place. Right? We, can't, we can't do that because black-bellied sheep were never put under the law. They don't, they don't have to offer to God obedience to His law. 
and so on and so forth. They haven't broken God's law, right? And they can't. I can't say, well, God, don't punish me. Punish this black-bellied sheep in my place, right? I can't do that. That's what it means. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. We need a substitute who is like us in every respect and yet without sin. We need somebody who is one of us, who is answerable to the demands of the law, but who has not incurred in himself the penalty for sin. And Galatians 4.4 tells us that Jesus is that one. Jesus, in the fullness of time, came, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. He He came into this world. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. When was He born of woman? Christmas. When, when was he born under the law? Listen, no, listen. Christmas. Right? He was born at Christmas with Easter in mind. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not making a point about the date of his birth. I'm making a point. No, but listen. In all seriousness, listen. Christmas happened because Easter was in God's mind. We need to understand that. When Jesus came, that cute little baby born in Bethlehem, He came in order to be Himself, to be the price of redemption. Jesus came born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And Isaiah 53, flip there. This is is all over Scripture. I just picked a few passages that are just real, real, real clear. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. This is a prophecy of Jesus coming. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, substitution. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He that is God the Father made Him, that is God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What happened at the cross was that all we like sheep had gone astray, but God sent a lamb into the world, right? a substitute as the Old Testament sacrificial system was preparing us to understand. A substitute to die in our place. Bearing the penalty that we deserve for our sins after offering up to God the obedience that we should have offered. Right? And so it is through His blood, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 says, through His blood that we have redemption. Through His blood. Redemption is not inspiration. In Christ Jesus, we have redemption because He gives us a second chance to live better lives and 
He gives us His law to help us understand what's pleasing to God. And His moral example inspires us to be better people. This is the way you hear redemption preached sometimes. And it's not true. It's wrong. That is not what the Bible says about redemption. The Bible says that we have redemption through His blood. The biblical gospel is a gospel of a bleeding and dying, wrath-bearing, punishment-bearing substitute. The gospel is a gospel of penal substitutionary atonement. Not a gospel of inspiration or a gospel of ethics or a gospel of a second chance to be a better person. It is a gospel of you deserve to go to hell. And upon the cross, Jesus bore the wrath and punishment that you deserve for your sins. That is the biblical gospel. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Penal substitutionary atonement. This is how persons are saved. They are saved by the work of a substitute, bearing in Himself the penalty that we deserve for our sins. That's what Jesus did on the cross. So look back at Ephesians 1.7 now. We have redemption. Not we have the possibility of redemption. Not we have the opportunity for redemption. We have redemption. When Jesus died on the cross, He died for me. And He died for all whom the Father planned to save. His blood was shed in a real event in history for the people whom God had, the Father had chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. That's the we. That's who the we refers to in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. Right? Last week we talked about unconditional election and when, when Paul says in verse 4 that He chose us in Him, it's referring to a subset of humanity. It's not referring to each and every person who ever walked the face of the earth. It goes on and he's still using we and still using us in the same way. The us who are said to be chosen in verse 4 are the we who have redemption in his blood in verse 7. This is the doctrine historically known as limited atonement. But that's a misleading name as John Piper points out. In his book entitled Five Points, Piper asks the question, who really limits the atonement? Meaning those who believe that Christ died for the elect only, do they really limit the atonement? Or do those who believe that Christ died for every single person who ever lived limit the atonement? Piper goes on to say, some limit the power and effectiveness of the atonement so that they can say that it was accomplished even for those who die in unbelief and are condemned. In order to say that Christ died for all men in the same way, they must limit the atonement to a possibility or an opportunity for salvation. In other words, Piper is pointing out that everyone believes in a limited atonement of sorts. Everyone who's not a universalist, that is. Right? And universalism is heresy. So if you're a genuine Christian, you believe in some form of limited atonement. The question is how, in which way, is atonement limited? We must either limit its intent 
and proclaim that Christ died only for the sins of those whom God has chosen to save, or we must limit its effectiveness and proclaim that Christ did not actually accomplish the salvation of anyone, but merely made the salvation of all people possible. Again, Ephesians 1, 7 says, we have redemption. Not we have the possibility of redemption. Now we have the opportunity for redemption. We have redemption. The penalty that God's elect deserve for our sins was actually received by Christ as our substitute on the cross. And if the penalty has already been meted out, then we cannot be punished again in hell. The same sin cannot be punished twice. It would be unjust of God to punish the same sin twice. Listen here, and let me be real clear about this. Christ Jesus did not pay the penalty for anyone who is presently in hell. Christ Jesus did not shed His blood to procure the redemption of anyone who is presently in hell. No one in hell can say what Ephesians 1.7 says. In Him we have redemption through His blood. It is plain and it is evident that no one in hell has redemption through the blood of Christ. But far from downplaying the significance of the cross, this is a glorious biblical truth that exalts the cross because it proclaims the effectiveness of Christ as Savior. John Owen points out that there are really only four options, and I'm going to add a fifth here. Um, I think Owen just did away with one because it's heresy. Well, really two are heresy, I guess, but listen here, five, there's only five options. This is really, no one can disagree with this. There are really only five options. The first option is that Christ did not die for any of the sins of any man. That's the one I added in. That's an option, right? And of course, no Christians believe that. By definition, that's an anti-Christian view. The second option is that Christ died for all of the sins of all men. In this case, even the sin of unbelief couldn't keep anyone out of heaven since Christ already received the penalty due for that sin. So that would lead to universalism, which again is another heresy. So thirdly, Christ died for some of the sins of all men. In this case, even if it is just unbelief that Christ did not die for, then wrath and condemnation remains for all of us because we were all once in unbelief. And if Christ did not die for unbelief, then we will all spend eternity in hell for the one sin that He did not die to atone for. Fourthly, some say Christ died for... Uh, well, actually, I've never heard anyone say this, but it's an option. It's a logical option. Christ died for some of the sins of some men. In this case, it's the same problem as I just mentioned. Right? Everyone for whom Christ did not die for any sins, obviously will not be saved, but even those some people for whom Christ died for some of their sins still have the problem being that the sins He didn't die for will damn them. Right? And so fifthly, and this is the most biblical, Christ died for all of the sins of some men. Those for whom Christ died cannot perish. They cannot be lost. He accomplished and secured their salvation upon the cross. 
such as they can say, in Him we have redemption through His blood. The way that Ephesians 1 talks about salvation is not hypothetical. God the Father chose to save certain sinners. And Christ Jesus came and died for each and every one of their sins. And we'll see next week the work of the Holy Spirit in applying this salvation. But God set out to save. And He will, in fact, save each and every one whom He planned in eternity past to save. Which means as we think about the cross this week and the Son's work in redemption, Jesus, in fact, did pay it all. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my sin. Far from downplaying the significance of the cross, the biblical doctrine of the atonement in that Christ died as a penal substitute for the elect exalts what happened on the cross. That we who were utterly helpless, utterly destitute, could do nothing to save ourselves, were under the condemnation of God, deserving of hellfire for all of eternity. We who could not even muster up a little bit of faith, just one measly condition for us to meet, we could not even do that. There was nothing we could do. We were destitute. Christ Jesus came and died for every single one of our sins. All, every one of my sins was paid for on the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation. Not just a little bit of condemnation. There's, there is now for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that when we come to put our faith in Christ Jesus, we look back and we see that at the cross, all of my sins, every one of them, was dealt with there. God did not just make it a possibility for me to be saved at the cross, leaving just a little bit of a condition for me to fulfill. Just one sin that He didn't atone for, just one sin that's a possibility for me to commit, which will damn me to hell, but every single sin of God's elect was placed upon Christ Jesus at the cross. <clears throat> so God planned to save sinners, and God sent Christ Jesus to suffer the penalty that they deserved for their sin as a substitute. That's the zoomed in plan of God, which we see in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The salvation of persons by the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ Jesus. Now the zoomed out plan of God, which we see unfolding here in uh, verses 9 and 10, particularly verse 10. The redemption... Uh, and, and restoration of the cosmos. The redemption of persons, a theologian named Howard Snyder says, the redemption of persons is the center of God's plan, but it is not the circumference of that plan. Even creation itself will be made new. Even creation itself will be rescued from the curse of the law. 
even creation itself is a beneficiary of redemption. And that's what Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 is referring to. If you have your Bibles and you got quick fingers, turn over to Romans chapter 8. For the creation, this is verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 1 Corinthians 15 calls Christ the second Adam, the second appointed representative of mankind. Though it's not explicit in that passage, it's explicit elsewhere in the New Testament, like Romans 8, which we just read, and even in the Old Testament prophets, about creation itself being freed from the curse. And the theology of the New Testament is that in Christ, it is in Christ that God is setting even the creation free. After Adam sinned, God says to him in Genesis chapter 3, 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. So creation is under a curse because of the first Adam. But it is as if God says to the second Adam, though we have no quote to this effect, it is as if God says to the second Adam, Christ Jesus, blessed or uncursed is the ground because of you. St. Clair Ferguson, commenting on Ephesians chapter 1, sums it up well. Because of the fall, because of the fall, the world of men and things has been fractured and fragmented. Disintegration is pervasive. Alienation reigns. Adam's sin plunged into disorder and confusion the whole creation, over which he was appointed as God's steward king. The fallen world no longer adds up to the perfect, harmonious cosmos God brought into being and planned to glorify. Now in Christ, God means to save his creation, to restore it and to transform it into the glory of its original destiny. This is what Christ came to accomplish. This idea is why Paul has so much to say about Jesus as the second man and the last Adam. By one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death followed in its way. And only by the work of a second man, another Adam, undoing what the first did, and then accomplishing the very things that he failed to do, can the cosmos be reintegrated. Paul's breathtaking vision is that God does this in Christ Jesus. Again, we saw last week God has a plan. This week we're seeing that it is a Christ-centered plan. God's plan for the salvation of persons revolves around Christ and His cross work. And God's plan for the salvation of the cosmos centers in Christ. See? It is in Christ Jesus that we see God's plan coming to fruition. This is what Ephesians 1, verses 7 to 10 tells us. God has set forth His plan in Christ. And what is His plan? To give us redemption through His blood and to unite all things in Him things in heaven and things on earth. That's the zoomed in perspective on God's plan and the zoomed out perspective on God's plan. God has this plan for salvation and it all hinges and revolves around Christ. Christ Jesus who came 
into this world to live as a perfect law keeper, to die the death of a law breaker, though he wasn't one, in order that as our law keeping substitute, both in his life and in his death, we could have redemption through his blood and we could live in a new heavens and a new earth which is uncursed because of him. So the plan of God the Father is to save persons and restore the cosmos in Christ Jesus, His Son. Are you trusting in Jesus to save you, both from the penalty of your sin, for the forgiveness of your trespasses, and for the restoration of the cosmos, to live with Him forever in a new heavens and a new earth? According to this passage before us, Ephesians 1, 7-10, you should be. Because that's what's going on in the world right now. God has made His plan known to us. A plan for redemption through Christ's blood. And a plan for the uniting of all things in Him. That's what's happening. That's Whether we see it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we agree with it or not, that is actually what God is doing in history. Is He's saving persons through the blood of His Son. And He's going to make all things new in the person of His Son. And so, you should. If you are trusting in Christ, both for the, your own personal redemption and for the redemption of the cosmos, you should rejoice. Because that's just a wonderful hope. It's amazing to think that our sins have been forgiven. That each and every one of our sins were dealt with at the cross. And it's amazing to think that we have a hope of a new heavens and a new earth. An uncursed universe where Christ is the head and all things are brought together back into harmony back into unity and integration the way that they should be in him that is a wonderful wonderful hope if you're not yet a believer in Christ and if you haven't yet trusted in him for salvation you need to you need to don't let talk of limited atonement keep you away. Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, 37, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The doctrine of limited atonement, which I've shown you from Scripture today, comes from the Bible. It's not ever meant to make people think, Oh, well, maybe I'm not one of the limited few that Christ atoned for. It's never used that way in Scripture. The doctrine of election is never used that way in Scripture, that people might think, well, I don't know if I'm elect, so I'm not going to come. The Bible speaks in grandiose terms. Right? The Bible speaks in wide terms. Right? Whoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. Right? I heard someone say recently, Calvinists and Arminians both preach the same gospel. Because we, we tell people, you're thirsty? There's the sink. Go turn on the tap and take a drink. Right? The, di the difference is when we open up the cupboards underneath and look at the plumbing and see, and see how did the water get there. Right? And I think that, that, that that's a helpful analogy. Right? We, look all, we both preach, look to Christ and you will be saved. Look to Jesus and in Him you will find salvation. He will, Christ has never, ever turned away anyone. Not one person. And Christ never will turn away one person. Right? And so these... These questions of am I elect, am I not elect, is this person elect, should I evangelize to this person, are they elect, should I come because I know that 
uh, Christ Jesus died only for the elect. I don't know if I'm one of the elect, so should I come? These are not questions that the Bible ever prompts us to ask. The reason that the scripture emphasizes election and uh, the atonement of Christ for the sins of his elect and so on and so forth is to assure us who have already believed in Jesus that our salvation rests ultimately not in us, but in him. To assure us and to comfort us that uh, it's not all at us, that God had a plan and he's working it out in this world and that we're saved by sheer grace. It's to bring comfort to us who have already trusted in Christ. And it's to humble those who think that they have something to boast about before God. It's to help those who are proud and arrogant see, you are actually not anything special. All of us are the same at the foot of the cross. All of us humans are fallen in Adam. And all of us humans have the same need, which is to look to Christ. So don't let any talk of limited atonement or unconditional election keep you away from Christ. If anything, let them woo you to a Christ who surely and certainly and effectually accomplishes salvation for all who are in Him. Leave it to God to figure out who His elect people are. My job is to teach uh, what the Bible says and to call each and every person to faith and repentance in Christ Jesus. And your job is to come in faith and repentance to Christ Jesus for salvation. So know that if you come to Christ, He will never cast you out. Know that the idea behind the proclamation of Christ's death for the elect only is not to diminish the number of the people who may come, but rather to assure all who do come that their sins, not in part, but the whole, are nailed to the cross. Christ did not come to merely bring the possibility of redemption, but to bring the actuality, the reality of redemption to sinners whom God has planned to save. That's what we see in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood.